music means it's the last radio hour of the week. The Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. Once a week we go very, very big, very, very, sometimes far back, sometimes not so far back, with guests from Hillsdale College, including this week, Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague, Dr. Khalil Habib. Now, Dr. Khalil Habib is on for the first time in a Hillsdale Dialogue series that extends now eight years or nine He is an associate professor at the college. He received his B.A. in political science at the University of Maine, his M.A. in political science from the University of Toronto, his Ph.D. in philosophy from Boston University, is taught prior at Salve Regina in Rhode Island. His most recent book is The Soul of Statesmanship, Shakespeare on Nature, Virtue and Political Wisdom. And he has taught what we are going to be talking about this week, next and beyond Alexis de Tocqueville. And I must say, gentlemen, welcome. I'm very excited about this because I have not read this book since 1976 when Alan Keyes managed to make it boring. I love Alan, but it was after lunch, uh, one o'clock after lunch for 20 weeks. And I just fell asleep all the time, Dr. Arn. And that's kind of hard. Alan doesn't put people to sleep, but it's a wonderful book. It's a terrific book. And I, I'm rereading it for the first time in 45 years. It's a remarkable book. Yeah, it's one of the most important books written about our country. It, uh, uh, I, I at least, Khalil, by the way, is a show pony and a great professor, and you're going to enjoy him. Uh, and I, I at least want to make some criticisms of Tocqueville's reading of America. But the first thing to understand is the greatness of the reading, which is one of the most insightful ever written. Well, Dr. Uh, Khalil uh, Habib, we will go to you first. Uh, Joseph Epstein, who wrote the introduction to my edition and a biography of Tocqueville, called him a genius of perception, the type whom Henry James would describe as someone on whom nothing is lost. Would you tell us about him generally and how you came to be a student of Tocqueville and to teach him so often? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you guys. Um, I came across Tocqueville as an undergraduate, actually, and um, the, it was at the University of Maine and the then chair of the politics department who didn't often teach political theory. I believe his area was uh, essentially um, comparative politics. And he taught a senior seminar on democracy in America, and I was just struck by it. Um, you know, as an immigrant to the United States, I was always amazed at how a country so large and so complicated can more or less peaceful. And, um, and it was Tocqueville and in that seminar that I was first introduced to how political theory really can help shed light on the American experience. And so I was just struck by him. Um, and then I was also struck by his work on the French Revolution, because um, being Lebanese, and as I'm sure you know, Lebanon was a French colony, essentially, um, the French Revolution did not, did not end well. And Tocqueville wasn't, uh, he was quite critical of it. And he wrote in the aftermath of the French Revolution, he corrects a lot of um, Edmund Burke's misconceptions, particularly about the causes of the French Revolution. And I was just amazed that you had like a pair of binoculars, you know, one lens that was examining the failure of the French Revolution. And then through the other lens, you would see the uh, appraise of the American Revolution and appraise of America and particularly it's uh, the Puritan origins of the New England townships. So I just felt by putting these Tocquevillian binoculars on, um, I was getting um, a, a bird's eye view of two revolutions, why one did not fare well and why the other one, according to Tocqueville, the American experience, is really the best 
possible uh, kind of a dem- democratic republic, but it's not without its um, uh, warnings. So who uh, he was, he was essentially a... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go right ahead. That's what I was going to ask. A little biography, please. Sure. So he, he was born in the 19th century, 1805, and he came from a French aristocratic family. He, he was a diplomat. Uh, he came to the United States ostensibly to study the its, its prisons, and he was only here for about nine months. And it's when he conceived of writing the book and the Doctrine in America, which was published really in two parts. And what's unique about him is, although he's an aristocrat, he is um, sympathetic to democracy, but he's always worried about some of its extreme excesses. What the French Revolution taught Tocqueville is that the centralization of government in the decline of anything resembling an aristocracy and the church would lead to essentially despotism and and ultimately the snuffing out of liberty. He looks to America as an example of how religion and liberty can coexist and how Americans, through their uh, decentralization and emphasis on local governance, sort of can pave a, a way for understanding how liberty can fare in an age of democracy. And so he died, unfortunately, at a very young age, at 1858. Uh, but his book, uh, Democracy in America, was a, a, an immediate sensation, and it was translated in a number of languages. And it generated enough money for him, even though he's an aristocrat. Um, he, it, was, he was, it, it enabled him to essentially restore his family's estate and to spend his life uh, writing. And, uh, and he publishes a book on the French Revolution um, after Democracy in America. Okay, I'm going to come back to that, but let let me ask Dr. Arne, as Dr. Habib points out, um, nine months, 286 days is what Epstein says. Uh, He spent a total of 286 days. Are there any similar projects where someone visits for 286 days and produces a masterwork of such penetration and insight? Although, obviously, there will be disagreements, as you announced early on, but it's still kind of an amazing project. Well, there's a there's a big literature of Europeans visiting America in the 19th century, and you know uh, America is the marvel of the world, right? Was then, is now, and uh, and so you know th- th- this is the best of them, and the one that's remembered. There are some others, Crevecourt and some people, but uh, uh, he, he Tocqueville is dramatic. Tocqueville. Uh, there's a passage early in the book that I read this morning, and uh, sorry, early in his book on the old regime, and then a comparison with the, between that and the American Revolution, and what he says about about what the French did was they simply attempted to obliterate their past. He said that they failed to do it, but at the same time they were attacked by all of Europe. And they were completely undaunted by that. And they prevailed, at least in the war with Europe. And we, on the other hand, we've got this vastness out here. The first chapter describes the land, and the land is just overwhelming to people when they see it. It still is to me. And, and so this is something new and something different and an opportunity in that. And he sees that as clearly as any of the founders of the country see it. Now, you were off and about on a motorcycle recently, and I was thinking about you when I reread that first chapter, which we'll talk about in depth next week. But he he surveyed this vista and he did not go everywhere, but he went a lot of places with an eye on geography. And that that gave him a kind of expansive soul, I think. 
Yeah, it, uh, he is very much. And, and you know, he has, he's a great man. He has eyes to see. So he sees the picture in the round. Like, if we all up and move to, you know, Ohio, we'd all become dumber. He writes great things about the Great Lakes, so I yeah, like that part. There you go. Yeah, if, uh, if, we, if we all move to the tropics, it would alter us in some ways. And there's an interplay then between our circumstances, all of them, including our physical circumstances and our way or character or being. And it's easy to think, you know, you can go down the line of Karl Marx and say that human beings are entirely contingent creatures. Or you can go down the line of the ancients and to a considerable extent Tocqueville and you can think human beings are the animals with reason and they work out their ways amidst the circumstances that surround them, and yet they're not utterly victims of those circumstances. The charioteer with a, a horse of passion and a horse of reason. Uh, Dr. Habib, when, when you teach Tocqueville, how do you do it? Well, I've changed it a number of times. Um, I just completed my third year at Hillsdale, and I've taught the graduate seminar in Tocqueville twice. The first time, I focused exclusively on democracy in America. And the second time I introduced him through the uh, French Revolution, his ancien regime in the French Revolution, and then we did democracy. So we went a little bit backwards. And the reason why I did that is it became increasingly obvious to me that, and it took a while to see this, but it was hiding in plain sight. Tocqueville's primary audience is really the French. The, the French failure to establish any meaningful political liberty was instructive for Tocqueville, and he believed okay, hold, that... Could, hold or, that thought, Dr. Habib. We're going to come back to the French Revolution and why Tocqueville adopted the approach he did right after the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here when Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Khalil Habib, associate professor of political theory there and there, as Dr. Arn said, show pony on Tocqueville. And we're going to be spending some time on Tocqueville. And if you want to read what I am reading, I am using the Joseph Epstein introduction book, uh, Democracy in America, The Complete and Unabridged, Volumes 1 and 2. When we went to break, and this is the short segment, Dr. Habib, you were explaining that he's very much a creature of the French Revolution, influenced by it and writing to a public traumatized or indeed evolving from it. And I guess that would be like, yeah, it's sort of like Americans are going to be influenced by 9-11 for a long time. And he's closer to 9-11 when he's writing to the French Revolution than we are to 9-11 now. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, if you take a look at the introduction to democracy in America, um, it's not clear. I mean, I've read it many, many years, and it wasn't clear to me uh, that it was really addressed to the French, and it was addressing the demise of the three estates, the destruction of the aristocracy in France, and the inevitable centralization of government, which is what he was most worried about. Um, it doesn't really come out. It becomes obvious when you read the, uh, his book on the French Revolution. There, he fills in all of the details. It was the centralization 
of government and a destruction of local liberty and man's capacity to govern himself that was the real cause of the French Revolution. And when you read or, or come, come to Democracy in America from his book on the French Revolution, the introduction starts to make a little bit more sense. It becomes more obvious that you know, he really is concerned about the French, as you put it, traumatized by this. But he doesn't want to give up. Although it's pretty bleak, he doesn't think the future of liberty is going to be very strong in France, if, if it even exists. And he turns to America to see what is it that Americans got right, and also, in many ways, a warning also to Americans what you could potentially get wrong. And that is, if you make the turn that the French did, um, allow political apathy to take root in, in culture and to just abnegate political responsibility and allow the centralization of government to take place, then you are going to be in the same condition as France was prior to the revolution. Uh, but the book, in many ways, is designed to show how Americans, at least at the time of Tocqueville's arrival, were dealing with these issues as a way to hold up a mirror to the French, you know, what you could do and what you did wrong. So, so now, moving forward, I teach both those books together, because I don't believe democracy in America is complete without the old regime and the French Revolution. And Dr. Habib, can you give us a, a quick note on his religious faith? Because uh, quite surprisingly, I'd forgotten a lot of this, that religion is so central to his understanding of America. And obviously the attack on the church by the revolutionaries in France, he ended his life as a rather conventional Catholic, according to Epstein. I, and so I'm trusting Joseph on this, but I, there's no reason not to. Did he evolve towards a more traditional Catholic or did he adopt the forms of Catholicism for the benefit of his family? Uh, that's funny you say that. I was just at a conference, actually, in Adam Smith and Alexis de Tocqueville, and that question came up. Um, you know, I don't know how anyone can read what's in the heart of a human being, but there was one person uh, at this conference in particular who believed that Tocqueville was a sincere Catholic, that it wasn't simply supporting the Catholic Church or religion for the sake of some noble lie. Um, this person, I won't reveal who it was. And I agree with him, by the way. I don't, I don't think that um, Tocqueville was some kind of atheist with some hidden agenda of let's just prop up religion as some kind of useful tool. I think his influence um, from Pascal and also the sections on religion in democracy, not just the ones about the Puritans and how they uh, were able to remarkably combine religion and liberty, but the sections later in the second half of the work where he talks about the importance of religion, uh, the importance of its probity into the heart, into the mind, and also how it creates the conditions for political liberty. I don't think these are just simply utilitarian arguments. I think that Tocqueville sees certain truths revealed by Christianity, and his biggest concern is that if we lose sight of the role that religion plays in in a free government, we're not going to have a free government much longer. And that's why he focuses so much on the American Puritans in the beginning. Again, if you read it from the point of view of the traumatized French who thought that religion and liberty could never coexist, that was the French problem. If you look to America, Tocqueville says, look what they've done. You have these Puritans who may be unfree in their morals because they were so pure Puritans, but they were free in their politics because the former was the precondition for their political liberty. They can govern themselves through uh, the austerity of their moral virtue, and that would trickle out into the public sphere where they could be trusted to govern their own lives. I think that for Toto, these things are real improvements in the human soul and not just some kind of political... I agree. More coming up. Stay tuned. America, the Hillsdale Dialogue continues on the Hugh Hewitt Show.
you're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn and Professor Dr. Khalil Habib talking about democracy in America. And I'd urge you, go out and get a copy. It's like five bucks on Amazon, Democracy in America, the Joseph Epstein introduction. And I'm not sure the translator is. I can look. It's in my hands here. There are a lot of different translations available. This is by Henry Reeve. And uh, Dr. Arn, I wanted to ask you about the liberty and religion question. That it's a, it's a broad question. We'll come back to the specific chapters. But when you read Tocqueville, are, are, are you reminded of the way sort of Hillsdale is organized? And I, I was because very respectful of religion, but also of religion's sphere and the law's sphere and they're being different. It's a it's a wonderful balance that he achieves. And he also notes when that balance is disturbed in places like Connecticut in the code of 1650. And it's too much of virtue being legislated into the penal code. But but generally speaking, he believes they're both necessary for, I guess, human happiness. Well, you know, the greatest, uh, the greatest achievement in the relationship between politics and religion is in the American Revolution. And Tocqueville sees that with open eyes because he's seen that they, the French Revolution, attempting to destroy the past, and, you know, the aristocracy is made up in France as it is in England out of the Lord, spiritual, and temporal, the bishops are powerful people. And so they cut the heads off those people. And, and uh, uh, so the American, the American solution to that problem is to exclude uh, religion from political power. You can't govern in the name of religion. Uh, you can govern in the name of the laws of nature and of nature's God, and religion and philosophy are, uh, agree on the moral level. So you can, you can have a strong thing that every citizen of good conscience and good mind should uh, subscribe to, and yet you don't have to have a faith. Uh, and so Tocqueville admires that and sees the importance of that. And yeah, and Hillsdale is, you know, we're a Christian college, and yet we've never required a faith statement to attend. And uh, uh, part of the reason from the founding of the college to this day is that we understand you can't go to heaven for somebody else. Well put. Now, now, Dr. Habib, I am curious about reading it. I, again, I go back to my experience 45 years ago, being bored senseless because of an after lunch <laughs> seminar and Alan just failing to alert it. But it also might be because at 19, you're not really, you haven't read enough to understand what a beautiful work it is. And it's actually written to be read. It's, it's beautiful English. It makes sense to a 21st century reader. Have you found that with your graduate students? No, absolutely. And I think the Tocqueville, or any great thinker for that matter, is exciting when there's a real troubling issue that you can relate to. Um, you know, when I, when I first encountered him, uh, you know, the Cold War was really still going on. There wasn't a fear of the centralization of government in the United States. There wasn't, at least to my mind, there was no fear at that age for me that there was this tyranny of the majority. I wasn't thinking about those. My mind was fixated on other issues. But as we now all can just see around us, the culture is taking egalitarianism to extremes and harming personal liberty. The administrative state has, has essentially consolidated power around bureaucrats and elites that are unaccountable. 
Now, when you approach Tokyo, and he's telling you that those were the conditions that led to the destruction of French liberty and and destroyed its civilization, now you've got my interest. Now it's interesting. Now it's beyond just simply an academic exercise. So what I've noticed in my grad students, uh, who I'm absolutely convinced are the best in the country, they come with great motives. They are really concerned about the country. When they read a work, it's not to test for an exam. They're looking for guidance and mentorship. Now what I notice is when we read Tokyo together, they come with serious questions that are prompted by our circumstances today. What do we do? How is this avoidable? What can we do to, to restore the kind of liberty that Tocqueville was praising uh, when he came to the United States? And the reason why I say that I don't think Tocqueville was just some kind of uh, puppet master with respect to religion, like it was some kind of noble lie. The students themselves, many of whom come to uh, Hillsdale pious, take, they take that very seriously, that one thing that they have to focus on to fight and push back against this terrible cultural war that we're in the grips of is to restore the family and to restore religion and to restore active civic participation. You would not, you would be hard-pressed to find a Hillsdale student, undergrad or grad, who isn't interested in participating in some capacity at the local level. And now what I notice when they read Tocqueville, they don't read it the way I read him back at the University of Maine, where it seemed like the, the worst thing in the world was this Cold War. That seemed a little removed, you know, from my life, to be perfectly honest with you. You know, in the boondocks of Maine, I'm not thinking about that as a serious threat. Now when I read Tocqueville and I read him with my students, it's almost as if it's um, you have a mentor from a distant time warning you of what could potentially take place in the United States, but giving you some guidance as to what you can do to combat it. So many of them find it inspiring in many ways. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, for the woke era, Tocqueville is the antidote. Uh, because he Absolutely. is warning about the excess of equality, even as he praises the delicate balance in America. And, Dr. Arn, that is the woke era is upon campuses everywhere. And I'm not sure that Tocqueville is widely read anymore. Do you think he is? Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think I Tocqueville, there's a kind of Khalil, there's a there's a vogue about Co Tocqueville at least once in my lifetime. And I think it's still goes on. Maybe it's only on the right, but uh, Har there's a Harvey Mansfield and his wife, Debra Winthrop, edition of, of uh, Democracy in America that's also very good, along with the Epstein one you named. And in the introduction, which I read yesterday, they make the point that uh, he's been admired both on the left and the right. But, you know, this excess, because... So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say more than once something I think is an objection to Tocqueville. Tocqueville teaches people, many people, that the passion for equality, whatever is central in the regime, can run riot. And so what we need to do is erect barriers to taking equality too seriously, uh, taking it too far. But, of course, on the other hand, if what you do is you... Uh, take, understand equality to mean that people are all to come out the same, regardless of their inclinations and their habits and their characters and their work, then that's not equality, that's inequality. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so equality, what's called equality, turns into inequality. And that's, that, that looks to me like a crucial argument that requires to be made today, and I don't think it's exactly like Tocqueville's argument profound though that argument is. Dr. Habib, what do you think about that? Because I was about to object. I think 
I thought Tocqueville anticipated that objection and dealt with it. What do you think of that? And by the way, he gives immunity to all of his colleagues when you can do bad things to him on the radio and he forgives. <laughs> no, well, I think it's a complicated question. And, uh, you know, there, there are certain things when I first read in Tocqueville, I think, yeah, he just got it right. And then, there, and then when I go back and reflect on it, I think they might be a little bit off. Uh, I'll give you an example just to follow up on Dr. Arn's point. When I first came across the passage on the tyranny of the majority, I thought, yeah, this is perfect. I mean, this absolutely describes what I see around me. But as you now know, this woke tyranny, is I don't believe, comes from a numerical majority. I think it comes from elites, a minority. I don't mean that in terms of an ethnic minority, just in terms of numerical. It's the universities and its elites pushing what looks like the tyranny of the majority. So I don't think Tocqueville always gets things right. Um, but what he means by equality and what he means by inequality is complicated, um, and I don't claim to understand it fully, but I'll give you an example um, of what he means. When he talks about, for example, liberty, he rarely means individual liberty. He always focuses on political liberty, by which he means institutions that check the abuse of power and pre- prevent the centralization of authority. What does he mean by equality? On the one hand, He actually praises equality, provided that you understand it as an equality of conditions where the barriers to excellence and to civic participation is open to all, not on the basis of birth, but on the basis of merit and on the basis of moral virtue and on the basis of many actually inequalities, you know, inequality in intelligence, inequality in uh, moral virtue and excellence. Um, That he praises. The, The equality he's wary of is egalitarianism and and he worries about it because he doesn't believe that most places particularly in france have done a good enough job in replacing the aristocracy of the three estates that prevented the centralization not just of government but also of opinion tocqueville's biggest concern about equality running amok is that it can take over and commandeer public opinion and make only egalitarianism the only legitimate standard to judge true equality and for Tocqueville, Tocqueville does believe in equality under the law, and he does believe uh, in equality uh, in the sense of pathways to governing your own lives. But they're always qualified on, on the basis of inequalities according to human character, which he thinks uh, are, are instrumental for a healthy republic. Now, Dr. Arn and I have been talking about the framing and the founding for many weeks now. Uh, we touched briefly on the French Revolution. Since Tocqueville wrote a book about it in, in a minute or, or a minute and a half, Dr. Uh, Habib, why does he think the French Revolution happened as it happened in France? Um, well, he, he, it's, it's complicated. It's typical with Tocqueville. But there were several steps that led to the French Revolution. One, the decline of feudalism. And what in particular did Tocqueville see in feudalism? The three estates, the first, the clergy, then the nobility and the people. They created formidable obstacles to centralization of monarchical government. But in the decline of the feudal era and also in the destruction of the aristocracy in France, nothing was put into place that prevented the centralization of the monarchical government. And Tocqueville says in that book, France transitioned from a monarchy to a state. That's a fascinating word. This impersonal bureaucratic nightmare that essentially piggybacked on the decline of the aristocracy. Nobody had seen that the real tyranny was centralization of government. And Tocqueville says, correcting Burke, by the way, that the real cause of the French Revolution wasn't so much these abstract ideas. I mean, if you read Burke, you walk away with this 
notion that abstract ideas are the cancer of civilization that to be avoided at all costs. Tocqueville says that's just a symptom. That, that is not a cause. The cause is the centralization of government, the destruction of local liberty. People were no longer governing their lives because there was essentially a new welfare state. And so the first part of the book, of, of the Ancien Regime, is correcting misconceptions about the causes of the French Revolution. The biggest one was that it was caused by economic inequality. That's how I, when, when I went through high school, that's what I heard, you know. Inequality caused it, sort of a yep. quasi-Marxist interpretation. And Tocqueville says, no, actually France was at its wealthiest. That was not its cause. And to Burke, Burke says it was abstract ideas, and what you should do is moderate them, by turning back to the institutions uh, you know, within, within your country to modify them. And Tocqueville says, but those institutions are what caused the very ideas that you're talking about. So Burke understood neither the cause nor the effect. And so for Tocqueville, the real, the real dilemma is avoid centralization and political apathy. You had a nation dependent on the state. They no longer knew how to govern their lives. And then they became susceptible to abstract ideas that had no bearing in reality because they lacked political experience. And then the guillotine Then the guillotine came. We'll come right back to this. Don't go anywhere on this Friday. This is the Hugh Hughes Show. We will plunge in America and the Hillsdale Dialogue next week into Democracy in America. And you can get an edition, the Mansfield edition or the Epstein edition, and read along with us. I just want to talk about method for a second using the Epstein description of it. Uh, Tocqueville traveled with uh, his friend, Beaumont, which is a good admonition right there. If you're going to try this, travel with a friend. Quote, their intellectual regimen during their stay entailed rising early, breakfasting, and then walking over to local libraries where they acquired all the statistical information they could get on population, institutions, political questions, and everything else that interested them. They would lunch late at 3 o'clock, return to their rooms to put their notes in order, and then at 7 o'clock go out into the world. This usually meant dining with influential Americans able to help them with their queries. Among them were Justice Joseph Story of the Supreme Court, Albert Galayton, Daniel Webster, Edward Everett, John Quincy, Samuel Houston, and even President Andrew Jackson himself. The one notable frizzle of all of Tocqueville interviews that came no more to an exchange of niceties. The great missed meeting was that which Tocqueville was supposed to have had with James Madison. Dr. Arne, it's not a bad way to go about sampling a country, but you better have the right letters of introduction. <laughs> well, you, you, you've got to remember that, uh, you know, America was a mighty thing by the time Tocqueville came, but it was also a rustic thing. You know, hey, here's a fancy foreigner. Let's all meet him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at, at about the same time, uh, Lafayette came back to America. And, you know, he, first of all, he was a very great man in the American Revolution and, you know, crucial to our winning it. And a figure, he's older than Tocqueville, of course, um, a figure in the French Revolution, which, you know, he managed to try to be a moderate through it and not get killed, which wasn't easy. Uh, well, the whole world went wild for him when he came back here. He met with Thomas Jefferson, of course, but, you know, in every town in the Midwest, you know, I live two blocks from Fayette Street, and the University of Arkansas uh, is in Fayetteville, and every town you go through in Michigan or the Midwest or the South has got a Fayette something. That's because he was just, you know, he comes back at about the time that the American Revolution has become successful. 
and and to, so Tocqueville and the, Tocqueville is uh, uh, important, right? He's uh, he's a distinguished visiting foreigner, apart from his personal qualities, which were riveting. So, and there's also I, I've got a comment on this because I made notes on it, Doctor Habib. There's a complete absence of cynicism in the Americans who greet him nowadays. I'd be afraid it's Sacha Baron Cohen who's come to see me. <laughs> Pretending to be, you know, a Tocqueville. No one would talk to him today, right? Everyone would be on guard. But in 1735, it's come on in, sit down, you distinguished Frenchman, you. Well, I think he actually gives us a clue as to why, in addition to what Dr. Arne had just said. You know, it's funny, you know, Dr. Arne lives a few blocks from Fayette. I'm in Newport, Rhode Island at the moment, just a few blocks from Fayette, where Fayette was here. Tocqueville first arrived in Rhode Island. And one of the things that he points out is that America at that time was still very much connected to its European heritage. So he wasn't entirely uh, foreign. I mean, of course, he's from French, from France, and, and, and we're English. Um, but there was a sense that there was more connecting uh, the, two, the two continents than, than, than disconnecting them. Um, but it's interesting because as Dr. Arn was talking about the importance of Fayette, it reminded me of one of the many things I used to do at my former institution, and that was when we would read Tocqueville, we would actually create in our mind's eye what America must have looked like when he arrived. And, um, and we would go to places where Fayette actually was housed in Rhode Island, and we would, talk, we would have historians talk about the, the American period at that time when Tocqueville came. I think it would be a great exercise for, uh, for a lot of people, actually, to just redraw the size of the country at the time Tocqueville arrives. What, what role did New England play um, in shaping our understand our revolutionary spirit. Oh my gosh, uh, that we're going we're to cover that next week because that's an early chapter. Uh, and recovering, recounting, or refollowing Tocqueville's path would be a great book. Let me give you the last two minutes of this week, though, Doctor Abib. What are the major themes? I mean, when we set up to dive in deep, what should people be looking for? Well, I think the clue is uh, in the title. Um, it's, it's easy to walk away and think that democracy in America is actually about America. It's really about democracy, which he defines as a social state, um, which is a material and intellectual condition of society. And then it's about America. It's about how America, its institutions, its people, its heritage, the character and the quality of its immigrants absorbed the democratic state. So it's really about two subjects. And that's why uh, he, the book, you can, it, with the two volumes, you could really see it's really divided into two parts. Reflections on the democratic spirit per se. Why did it fail in France? And that's because it didn't have institutions and a, a history of self-government that Americans have. Why did it succeed? So he's really examining the spirit of democracy in two different places in the world under two different types of people to show you the importance of the moral and political habits necessary for liberty. So those and, are his main themes. Um, and then, of course, the biggest theme that glues both volumes together is the tension between equality and liberty. And uh, we will come to that next week. We're going to read the first, the introduction, the first three chapters. Get any edition you want, and we're going to do a segment per chapter, introduction in the first three, and then we'll tell you what we're going to do. But if you want to be in tune with us, do that for next Friday. Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Aliel Khabib, thank, Habib, thank you. Thank you, uh, Adam and Dwayne. Thank you, Ben and Harley. Hillsdale.edu. For everything Hillsdale, I'll be back on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. When you absolutely, positively need the truth, this is where you turn. 
This is the Hugh Hewitt Show.